The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily express those held by this station or its advertisers and are strictly the opinions held by those contributing to the show. Welcome to the Eric Little High School Football Podcast, your home for news, discussion, and opinions about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. And now, here's your host, Eric Little. Hello and welcome inside another edition of the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Once again, I am the namesake. Thank you for joining us this week. This is a high school football podcast about, well, what else? High school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. Some thoughts to get to from last week, plus we'll have a new poll question for you. And some thoughts that spring from that poll question. We'll have much more to come. Let's get into last week's stuff first. Ritchie County's defense might have played their most impressive game in their win against St. Mary's. They held St. Mary's to 103 rushing yards in 30 attempts. It averages out to just under 3.5 yards per carry. Ritchie County defeated St. Mary's on Friday by a 32-2 score. That included 30 two unanswered points. St. Mary's got their safety before Ritchie County scored anything else. At the end of one quarter, that was a 2-0 ball game. Uh, St. Mary's had a slight lead over Ritchie County at that stage. And not that Ritchie County's offense didn't do a good job, and I'll get to them in a second, but to limit a team in St. Mary's that came in maybe a little bit puffed up, they knew they had the number one spot in the WVSSAC rankings. They had been consistently in the Metro News top 10 throughout the season. But Ritchie County knew that a win against St. Mary's, regardless of how good they are this year, would be a statement win because of how good that program has been in the last decade. And they came out and they stifled that St. Mary's running game Nowhere for those guys to run. Trey Moss finished a yard short of 100 yards. He had a touchdown offensively and then a 75-yard pick six for a score. Garrett Owens ran for two touchdowns, 160 yards. Ethan Hott threw a touchdown pass to Gus Morrison, who was becoming an emerging threat on that offense. I think it seems like they've settled on Ethan Hott as their quarterback, and I don't see them rocking that boat, to be quite honest with you. And I'm not sure that they should at this point. They're winning with Ethan Hot. Uh, I wonder how far you can go with a freshman quarterback You know, once the, this team makes a run because this is a team that's poised to make a run. Let's not make any bones about it. This is a Ritchie County team that has a good shot and the best shot of any Ritchie County team in a very long time to be playing games after Thanksgiving this year. Make no mistake about that. Ritchie County is for real and things are clicking for the Rebels right now. We'll see where it goes from here. Ritchie County's got Doddridge County Thursday in a game that will have much more discussion discussion about later on in the program. St. Mary's has Calhoun, a trip against Calhoun County on Friday. Both those games are actually going to be on 93R, come to think of it, but Ritchie County made a statement with that win and perhaps their most impressive performance of the season, especially for what the defense did in that game. St. Mary's isn't done yet. Coming into the year, we looked at St. Mary's and a lot of people were saying 5-5, five and 6-4 five, and four about this Blue Devil team. That was kind of the consensus I'd been hearing around. I think now that St. Mary's has those two wins against the AA opponents to start the year, that gave them a nice boost and I really think there are the winnable games out there for St. Mary's on the schedule. I'll say it right now, I don't know that the Williamstown game is one of them, as it comes up next week, and we'll talk about that much more down the road, but St. Mary's could very well prove me wrong, but they're not done yet. They're definitely a team that has a strong chance to get to the playoffs, compared to some other teams that we'll talk about on this program, but they're definitely a team right now that cannot win on the pass alone. They're going to have to run the football a little bit if they're going to win. Some teams could almost pick and choose, you know, like if you're going to take my pass away, fine, I'll run. If you're take my runaway fine I'll pass St. Mary's is not one of those teams not this year at least not yet so they've got some noise to make and they'll win some ball games still before all said and done but that's definitely one way that they're not going to win if you limit them to throwing the football and that's not a knock on Brennan Boron he's been improved he's played a lot better that's not a knock on him at all but they're definitely a team that cannot win on the pass alone huge huge perhaps season saving win for 
Parkersburg Catholic. They knocked off Ward County at Stadium Field 28-7. Homecoming King Jeb Boyce with three touchdown runs in that game. Parkersburg Catholic also got a 66-yard interception return from Ethan Lang at the end of the first half. They went into the locker room up 21-7, and Boyce's 21-yard run in the fourth quarter, the only score of that game in the second half. Parkersburg Catholic limited Wark County to 94 yards rushing, always a good thing when you can limit somebody to under 100 yards in one facet of their offense. But why this is such a big win for Parkersburg Catholic, Wart County had all the momentum. They'd won two straight after an ugly loss in week one that I think is going to come back to haunt them later on down the road. And Parkersburg Catholic had lost two straight. The Crusaders were really ripe for the picking for a Wart County team that's got Jason Hickman back as the head coach out there. He's building that program, and I think they're going to get to where they're going to be a team that in many years can win five, six, seven Class A games or more and uh, be a playoff team more often than they're not in Wart County. And in Class A. That's what I see of that program if he sticks out there. They're going to have years and runs where they have just some excellent athletes, but if he stays out there for a generation, I think more often than not, they're going to be in the playoffs. That's what Jason Hickman has done and can do again for Wart County. But Parkersburg Catholic played a good ball game. They found ways to get it done. They limited that Wart County team to seven points. They got three touchdowns from Jeb Boyce, and I think it's a big win when they needed a big win. They'll go to two and two. And they've got Gilmer County Saturday afternoon, so that's kind of a cool one there as uh, Parkersburg Catholic, I believe, will be playing that game behind their Fairview Avenue school. So if you're in the area, something worth checking out, perhaps. Parkersburg South brought their most dominant performance of the year. They had five takeaways on defense. That's the only thing that's going to maybe draw some attention away from the fact that they scored eight touchdowns, 55 points for Parkersburg South, and a 55-18 to win over Princeton. Brandon Penn found four different receivers for passing touchdowns. He ran for a score. He came up with a sack. He had two interceptions in that game as a defender, he's having a tremendous season. This is a team that scored an average of seven touchdowns a game in their first four wins of the year. They've not played a lot of close games. They've mercy ruled three different opponents. They've had that fourth quarter clock running in three different games this year. I'm going to be completely honest, and I don't know that there's anyone or anything that can change my mind on this, but Brandon Penn is the best player in the area by far this season, and I don't think there's anyone close. Yes, I know Mark Rucker's done big things. Yes, I know Hunter America's done big things. It's all been very one-sided, I think, out of those guys. Show me somebody who's done better on all sides of the ball than Brandon Penn, and I don't think it can be done. Granted, I'm a little biased because I see Penn every week, but show me another player who's out there running for scores, throwing for scores, forcing fumbles, recovering fumbles, taking interceptions away, making it happen on defense, making the big tackle to save a game. He turned the game around against University three weeks ago, and that was a game in Week 2 that had a chance to get away from South in the second half. Parkersburg South lost two of their offensive linemen to injury early in the half. University found something on offense early in the quarter, had scored, and then Brandon Penn threw his first interception of the year. I know I'm praising him, but it is a fact of life. He did do an unfortunate thing right after that, but... University had just scored. Brandon Penn threw his first interception of the season, and University was driving for another score that would have made it, I believe, a one-score game at that point. But Penn came up with a big stop at the two-yard line on a fourth down, and then a couple plays later, South was back in the end zone on the other end. Things swung back in the other direction. It very easily could have gotten away from South in that game had Penn not made that big tackle. But he's the guy this season that not only has put up the numbers, but he's also made the big play at the big time of that game. And that's what makes him such a clutch player. That's what makes him such a valuable player. And it's kind of like what Parkersburg South got from Nick Yoho last season. I know that Penn has spent a lot of his career looking up to Yoho because Nick Yoho is a good guy on and off the field and he's a great ball player. But what 
Penn is doing this year, it is so much more important and so much more vital than what even Yoho did last year. There's no question, I think, that this team cannot be where they are without Brandon Penn. I don't know if I'd say he's the most valuable player on any team, meaning that if Team X lost this guy, they would have none of their success because I think there's a lot that's already there at Parkersburg South. If they lost Penn, I think they could win without him because they do have a lot of other good players. But I will say this, he has been the best player in the area. Is he the most valuable player on South? Yes. Is he the most valuable player on any team in this area? Probably not. But he is the best player on any team in the area, if that makes sense. I don't see myself finding anybody that has done more and has had a better season than what Penn has done at Parkersburg South. He came ready to play this year, plain and simple. He's about 15 pounds bigger, more muscular, stronger, durable. I don't know how many other superlatives I can throw out there. He's Superman with the S on his helmet instead of his chest. That's pretty much about all that you could say about Brandon Penn, or the the most important thing you could say about Brandon Penn, and, and sum up what's done there, because he has carried that Parkersburg South team on his shoulders, and then some. But again, they have a chance to wrap up a perfect first half of the season, as the Patriots will take on John Marshall at home Friday, finishes up a three-game homestand, and it is you know the fifth game of the season. Uh, they'll play game six on the road, and then a bye week, and then a four-week swing to the playoffs. So this Parkersburg South team building momentum. The road game, it should be noted, a week from Friday, Friday is at Huntington, which is one of the last really big hurdles that this team faces before the playoffs. Huntington, you have to look at Wheeling Park and then, of course, PHS. Not that you're overlooking anybody, but at the same time, those are the ones that you're really going to want to look at and you're really want to, going to want to keep an eye on as the season winds down. Williamstown rolled, and they're doing it without Jarrett Frazier. I was not aware of this, but Frazier broke his leg in their last game. Certainly best wishes out to him. Uh, I think we had talked a little bit, maybe even on this show, but definitely on Countdown to Kickoff, about how he was a big threat for Williamstown. No, not the case there without him. He broke his leg. Ty Moore is going to be the lead ball carrier on that team. I'm sure Braden Modest is going to get some carries, maybe even some Eric Brown. But Ty Moore, 15 carries, 95 yards. And a touchdown run for Williamstown as they rolled 44-0 against Ravenswood. Braden Modisett ran for a score, threw for one. It's just a Williamstown team that finds people to step in when they need somebody. I don't know that there's any team that embodies next man up more than Williamstown does. It's a it's a huge cliche, but it works. Modisett and Trevor Oates were in a duel for that starting quarterback position at the beginning of the year. It seems like Modisett's been the guy. And it's been a good call for Terry Smith, the head coach of the Yellow Jackets. How about this on D? defense, though, and this might be the saving grace of this Williamstown team, and this is going to be what's going to make them a tough, tough out in the postseason. They held Ravenswood to five first downs, 54 rushing yards on 38 carries. You talk about the definition of insanity being trying something, and when that doesn't work, and trying it again and expecting it a different outcome. That seems to be 38 carries, 54 yards for you, but they only threw for 14 yards, so passing the ball wasn't working for them either. Williamstown limited Ravenswood to 68 total yards, and kind of fitting because you can take 60 all the way to Ravenswood, and that's basically what Williamstown did, is send them packing on their way and handed them a 44 to nothing L. So Williamstown hosts Buffalo this week. That's not going to be an easy game either. Buffalo's having a tremendous season too. So a big game for the Yellow Jackets, and they'll be tested this week. How about a good effort from PHS in a road loss to Capital? They lost 35-13. to They were in that game at the half. They were down just 14-6. to Capital got a big 14-point swing in the third quarter and scored 21 consecutive points in that game before PHS put up a late score, and that's really where it was won or lost. But you look at the yardage, Capital with 413, PHS with 402. Both teams found a way to run the ball. Both teams found a way to pass the ball, but 
PHS turned it over four times, whereas Capital turned it over just two. It's just a case of going on the road and losing the turnover battle. It doesn't often end up well for you at the high school level, but an improvement upon their effort against Cabell Midland on the road a couple weeks ago. So it's a 2-2 two and two PHS team that will have Marietta at home this week, and that's going to be a really good game too. Speaking of Marietta, they got a nice rebound and a win against Ripley. That's a crucial loss for the Vikings because they go to 1-3 and three now, and they don't really have too many more games they can afford to lose on that schedule. Not that they can't win the other games, but because they're running out of time to make impressions and, and gain points for the playoffs. Uh, Chase Taylor and, and the running game really had a rough outing for Marietta a couple weeks ago against Williamstown. They bounced back this week in this win against Ripley. 12 carries, 180 yards for Taylor. He ran for two scores, both of them beyond 50 yards. That's how you run, rack up all those yards on not a lot of carries. But Marietta with minus three passing yards, it's clear that if they're going to beat PHS, they're going to have to throw the ball at least a little bit because PHS and Mike Bias, they can key in on a running back as good as anybody, and Taylor's going to have a long night if they can't throw the ball at least a little bit around him. But a good win for Marietta. They go to 3-1. That's good to see out of Jason Chobe's Tigers. Frontier now 4-0. and They beat Cameron this week. 33-20 the final score there. Frontier getting it done on both sides of the ball. They ran for 260 yards, threw for 150. That adds up to 410. They limited Cameron to 110 yards, including just 42 on the ground. So they're going to be a very tough force to be reckoned with in Ohio as well. And they'll host Magnolia on Friday in a game they'll be favored in, I would manage to think. Improved for Magnolia, but they fell short last week in a 34-14 loss to River. The Pilots score the first 34 points of that game until Magnolia got on the board in the fourth quarter. So River evens up their record at 2-2. Two and two. Carter Dennis ran for three scores for the Pilots in that one. Tyler Consolidated's Mark Rucker set an individual mark. The team had a scoring record in a 74-36 win against Calhoun. Our Craig Dutton reports that Mark Rucker broke the Tyler Consolidated career rushing yardage record. It was held by Matt Wright a decade ago. 2,871 yards versus Doddridge County. He did that in week two. After Calhoun in week four, Rucker's career yardage totals 3,136. So definitely uh, congratulations there for Mark Rucker. That's always nice when you're, you do the most of something good. It's at your school. And the team set a scoring record as well. 74 points, the most scored in Tyler Consolidated history. History. That goes back to 1993 and their 74-36 win against Calhoun. I was curious about this after talking to Craig a little bit off the air about this over the weekend. My question was, has any Tyler County High School team scored 74 points? The answer that I came up with was yes. It's only been done one other time. This is the, the only one that tops 74 points from the Silver Knights last Friday. It happened on September 12, 1986, when Sistersville beat Frontier 76-8. Louis Nasita's Sistersville Tigers, and Nasita's last year as their head coach, they beat Frontier 76-8 on September 12th that year, and that is the only score, the only scoring output that was higher from a Tyler County high school than that 74 points that the Silver Knights put up against Calhoun County. I didn't look up Peyton City because... They're not Tyler County schools, in my opinion. They've always been kind of up in that Wetzel County block. Uh, I know Peyton City straddles Tyler and Wetzel County, but I, I looked up Sistersville, I looked up Tyler County, and I looked up Tyler Consolidated. Out of those three schools, that uh, 1986 effort, September 12, 1986, Sistersville 76-8 win over Frontier. That's the only one that tops what the Silver Knights did on offense with 74 points on Friday against Calhoun. So pretty lofty company to be in, though, the story Lunosita Sistersville teams. And congratulations out to Peyton City's Zach Heasley. The Wildcats won 55-49 against Bridgeport, and that was Heasley's first varsity win. They're now 1-3, and, and they will face 100 on Friday. 
Watch high school football live streamed wherever you are. Don't miss the Moran Construction Game of the Week on 1455 Sports. Log on to 1455media.com slash live. That's the word 14 and the number 55 for great coverage of the area's biggest games. This week, Parkersburg Catholic welcomes Gilmer County behind Parkersburg Catholic High School for a Saturday night special. Kickoff is 7 p.m. Log on to 1455media.com slash live. That's the word 14 and the number 55.com slash live. It's the Moran Construction Game of the Week on 1455 Sports. Stay connected with us on Facebook. Like our page, the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. While you're there, answer our weekly poll question and feel free to share your comments or questions. Eric will get to those on a future edition of the show. Let's take a look at last week's poll question. We asked, based on current safety measures and technologies, would you play or would you let your child play high school football? Why or why not? This poll had a lot of votes, and it's interesting it had so many votes given that it was really a nonpartisan kind of poll. This wasn't one that was you know, encouraging one fan base to share and like and anything like that. Or I say encouraging, but it didn't really invite that, I guess is what I'll say. This was just a simple question, a simple question with the theory of the game. 51 people voted, and I thank you for participating in that. We had a lot of comments that I'll share in just a moment. 73% of the votes said yes, 27% of the votes said no. At 51 votes, not a bad sample size, to be quite honest. 73% said, based on current safety measures and technologies, they would play or would let their child play high school football. And I worded it that way because I'm not dismissing the fact that there could be actual active high school players or recently graduated players in this poll or in this listening audience that could have answered this question. We've talked about Taryn Malone on the broadcast before, former student journalist at Magnolia's at WVU now and working for Metro News, but he played football last year, so someone like that is kind of who I had in mind in terms of that age group and someone that could actively be playing or could have made a decision to not play for that reason. I want to look at some of the comments here on this. There are some really, really good thoughts out there. And what I liked about this is that there were some thoughts from people that are not necessarily football people that I know. And that's what interested me in this. Doug Rowan, friend of mine, says, I'm not going to oppose it, but I'm not going to encourage it either. Nice middle ground with plausible deniability. I like that response. Yeah, you're not going to not gonna necessarily put a football in, in, in your child's hand, but also not going to say no. Jamie Hall writes, educate your child and yourself. Play football, my sons. So Jamie's going to give the green light. Vincent Kang, I was in college. We worked at U92 together. The college radio station says, I never found football interesting in the least. Easy call. Also, at this point, college football is so professionalized that it isn't real. You don't know the players like like you do in high school football. It's just one big corporate monster where you cheer for abstract logos. He's not wrong about any of that, but except maybe, you know, never finding football interesting because some of you at least find it interesting. I find it interesting. That's his opinion. That's okay. But based on the way he said easy call and he didn't find it interesting and then he kind of pivoted to college and kind of used high school, uh, you know, saying that uh, you don't know the players like you do in high school football, you know, personalizing this game, I kind of followed up with him and I asked him, you know, if that was a yes or no. And I like this thought. He says, it is a no vote. The concussion issue alone makes football a no go until the age of 15 if the kid is that determined. Peewee football is a definite no. I tend to agree with that. I would be a lot more skittish about letting my child play peewee football than I would about letting my child play high school football. And here's why. I don't know that I can vet for peewee coaches the same way that I could vet for high school football coaches in terms of teaching your kid proper skill, proper technique, and protecting your kid. You want to make sure your kid has good coaching. You want to make sure your kid is being coached by people who also know the game. So and who are also qualified to teach how to tackle the right way, how to hit the right way. I definitely know that there are a lot more standards on that in high school football than there are the peewee levels or anything that's out of the scholastic system. So I definitely agree with that. And because I'm not so sure that kids ought to be playing football below maybe the eighth grade anyway. 
you know, you're still very much in development at that point. I'd be fine with flag football at that point. I think flag football is, is a wonderful idea, a wonderful resource that needs to be tapped into a little bit more, and I'm not really sure why it hasn't been a little bit more widely developed in, in certain areas, especially not around here, because it encourages you to play, it encourages you to have fun, uh, it encourages you to get out and do something, and uh, to be honest, there's a lot of the fundamentals of the game you can still learn just the same by playing flag football at that age, but you're just not having six-year-olds bash their heads together. So yeah, I kind of agree with Vincent right there. I would be a lot more skittish about letting my kid play before the age of 15, but at your 15, I think you sit down, you have a talk with them, and you discuss, you know, hey, this this could happen. This, you know, Are you prepared for that? And, and if you like your kid's answer, if you look your kid in the eyes and you like what you see and hear, then okay. You know, that's about the point of life where you need to start letting your kids make decisions for themselves. And I mean, I grant I'm not a parent, but at the same time, I think that a lot of that is knowing when you can take the training wheels off and uh, let your kid start to stand up for themselves as an adult. And, and, and that's right around the age to where uh, you got to do that. Ron McCurry says, I think the safety, the equipment, along with the coaching and officiating make the game a lot safer now than when I played. And I agree, Ron. The equipment is a lot better. The plastics that we have are about as good as we've had so far at taking G-Force away from head-to-head hits. The players are better protected now. Officiating does a good job to enforce protective equipment. You see kids removed from games if chin straps are not on tightly. Officials do a good job to check for stuff like that. They make sure people's pads aren't sticking out of jerseys and stuff like that. The whole uniform acts as the protective barrier, and, co- and officials are good at protecting that. Coaches are a lot better about recognizing when players need to come out of games than they used to be, and they're a lot more honest about protecting the integrity of the kid and the future of that kid. So I definitely think it's not just the safety of the equipment, but the coaching and the officiating that have made strides in recent years. Rick Schuler, whose son Sam plays for Parkersburg South, says, we had this talk with Sam, and he said, I love this game. And that's the conscientious thing to do, is to sit down with your son and have an honest conversation. And I say this about the Schuler family. I know Sam has had health issues. He missed all last season with those health issues. And I've thought about him a lot when this discussion's come up. I've thought about him a lot when Alex Miller lost his life on the football field last week. I know Sam's a good kid. Sam's somebody that makes good conscientious decisions, and I, I certainly am hopeful that everybody's health holds up, but I'm definitely hopeful that, that, that Sam's holds up as well, because I want to see him play the game, too, because I know he loves it. But it takes a good talk. Craig Dutton writes, I really like Doug Rowan's answer. Dr. Samuel Johnson's right about Olson Johnson's being right. And I'm not giving up my ice cream parlor that I built with these two hands for nothing or nobody. Howard Johnson is right. Right. Thank you, man. I was never encouraged to do one activity over the other by my parents due to safety. I chose one year to play middle school football and enjoyed the experience, even though I was never fully suited to play the sport because I had a lot of ground to catch up in understanding gameplay and schemes. My parents were excited in whatever activity or sport that I participated in and didn't worry about the safety involved with the point I needed to remove from the activity. And to me, that made all the difference while growing up just to have their support. I think that's effective parenting. I think parents tend to try to do their best to have their children's experiences growing up mirror their own. If you played one particular sport or did one particular activity, you're going to try to drive your kid to that activity. But I think when they're little, you put a lot of different things out in front of them. You know, maybe music, sports, academic endeavors, dance. There's so many things you can get involved with that are going to appeal to some and are not going to appeal to others. You know, what maybe appealed to you and you were a kid does not appeal to your kid. And that's not always easy for people to fathom and people to stomach, but that's that's the truth. There's a lot of times you see people that did not grow up playing sports and, you know, their kid does. 
I love that kind of family because that's somebody that says, you know what, I don't necessarily understand or know a lot about what you do, but doggone it, I'm going to be there to support you for it and have your back for it. So I I think that all parents need to maybe think along those lines, that maybe the thing that their kid's going to get involved in or have a passion for is not the thing that they also had a passion for. It's tough, you know, especially if you feel out of your realm, but at the end of the day, I think the kid is going to think more of you and appreciate you more for that experience. I definitely think, regardless of what it is, I think every kid, every single kid, needs to have at least one athletic experience growing up and needs to have one artistic experience growing up and pursue or try to pursue at least one endeavor in both of those different directions. It can be art, it can be music, it can be dance, it can be whatever you want it to be, but something in art and something in athletics. And I'm not necessarily saying, you know, your kid's karate lesson. I think a team sport is a vital part of growing up because you need to understand how to cooperate and work with other people. I think you need to understand how to play your role within a larger organization or a larger function. And I think the team sports do the best job of anything to teach that and to get that out there. So a lot of good answers, a lot of good responses there. And what I like, like I said, is that I know not everybody had a background with football or an interest in football, but that's what makes this show rich, all the different perspectives. I thank you so much for that. I didn't think that this would necessarily be the best question we've ever had, but I think it might have been in terms of the number of votes and the feedback we got and all the different thought that came out. So I want to thank you for all for putting that out there as last week's poll question and all the participation we got in that poll question. This week's poll, uh, it's going to be timely because of homecoming. We mentioned that Jeb Boyce was homecoming king for Parkersburg Catholic, scored three touchdowns in that game. Should football players be allowed to participate in homecoming court or other non-football activities on game day? I want some thoughts on that. Should football players be allowed to participate in homecoming court or other non-football activities on game day? Before we get into this week's games of the week, I want to touch on Alex Miller once again because the sports world in this region was shaken to its core by the death of Roan County's Alex Miller on a football field nearly two weeks ago, and the tributes poured out last week. A lot of schools sold and wore maroon t-shirts during the week and for their games on Friday, and a lot of schools throughout the state had their captains carry out the number 80 jersey, and I thought that was just a class move. A lot of schools did that. I saw Princeton and Parkersburg South both do that in the game that I had. I know that somebody in the state, and I want to say maybe Richwood had the idea, and that went viral because of that, but I'm sure the message boards probably helped, and, and it's a small state, so you say one thing on social media, it, it gets pretty wide. The one that touched me the most, and I'm going to share this because it's a personal experience, I do play-by-play for Notre Dame College in the Mountain East out of uh, South Euclid, Ohio, and Notre Dame was at home this week in South Euclid, the Cleveland suburbs, against Fairmont State, and it was the biggest game of the week in the conference. You had Preseason one, preseason two. NDC won 61 49. A lot of points scored in that one. Fairmont State carried out the white number 80 jersey to midfield. Cool because a college team did it, for one, and it transcended the high school scene in this state because all football players share that brotherhood. But also cool because Fairmont State wasn't at home. The game was being streamed on the NDC Athletics website, and unfortunately, I hate to say that the camera went out in the third quarter, so you had to listen to Jake Bunner and I did the game on basically a radio call with a black screen for most of the game, or at least the second half. The, the part where things got really good. So no one was really going to see the gesture other than and know what it meant other than the fans that Fairmont State had in attendance. The number of people in attendance on Saturday who knew what that gesture was for was not not a very big amount of people, and they still did it and went through with it. And I think that was really cool and really touching. Uh, but either way, a lot of cool 
tributes to Alex Miller. And again, keep the Roan County Raiders in your thoughts and in your mind this week because they got to go back home on Friday against Braxton County and go back to the business of playing football. They had their bye week this week, which is probably the best time for it. And then Clay County before it, the, you know, the night where Alex passed. So the Roan County Raiders have seven games left on the schedule and it starts this week and it should be an emotional season for them. I'm sure they're in a lot of ways glad to get back to action, but definitely, definitely keeping them in our thoughts and prayers all throughout this process. The games of the week in the area, how about Parkersburg and Marietta? Marietta can make a really big statement if they can go to 4-1 and one at Stadium Field with a win against PHS. PHS, I think, would be favored in that one because, as I said earlier, Marietta has not shown much of a passing attack in the last couple of weeks, and the run game has at times been streaky and is susceptible to being stopped. Williamstown stopped their running game. So if PHS can do anything against that run game, then Marietta might be in for a long night. Tyler Consolidated and Work County, the Silver Knights, are at 1-2. and two. They've got a lot of work left to do if they want to be a playoff team. Work County is at 2-2 two and two now, and they gave Parkersburg Catholic a game last week. We'll see if they can step up against a Tyler Consolidated team that just hasn't stopped anybody yet. And that's the thing that they need to do. They need defense right now. Mark Rucker has run all over the place. He's become a school record rusher, and they scored 74 points, but it's not like that 36 points from Calhoun County last week came in garbage time either. Most of that was in the second and third quarter. So they still need to play defense, and they still need to find a way to stop somebody this year. If they get a little bit of defense, they could go a long way, and they could make a, make big things happen, but it didn't happen for them last year, and so far it has not happened for them this year either. So that's a game where Work County could make some hay. Tyler Consolidated would like to get that one to go back to 500. And Ritchie County and Doddridge, the big one on Thursday night. Doddridge County is going to throw Hunter America and uh, give Ritchie County all that they have. It's a pair of 3-0 and records, but Ritchie County has played good defense. They did that in their win against St. Mary's, and they can run the ball, and now Ethan Haught is developing as a passing threat, too. That's a team that's got a chance to go a long way, and this one is going to be a battle for supremacy in the upper echelon of Class A football this year. The game's on Seven Ranges Radio. We've got two of them on. Light Rock 93R as Ritchie County and Doddridge play on Thursday night, and then St. Mary's and Calhoun on Friday. Coverage Thursday starts at 6.30, and then with countdown to kickoff on Friday at 6. WXCR 92.3 FM has that Tyler Consolidated Work County matchup, and then V96.9 has Parkersburg South and John Marshall's the Patriots try to go to 5-0 and against the John Marshall Monarchs on homecoming on the south side. So some good games on our stations this week. Hey, thank you for listening this week. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us and review us there. It does some good for us. Also, listen to us on SoundCloud. Thank you for finding us. Follow us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. Vote in the polls. Comment on the poll questions. Your feedback is welcomed and as you've heard, it's used throughout the show and it makes the discussion a lot better. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate your opinions. My name is Eric Little. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, enjoy the games, everybody. This has been the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and vote in our weekly poll. Come back next week for another new episode, and thanks for listening. Howard Johnson is right.